Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this, unbelievably, is the 100th episode. That seems a ludicrous threshold from my perspective, and I'm thrilled. But we'll save the rhapsodising and the celebration to the afterword, which is where self-indulgence more properly goes to die. Right now, I've got a guest to speak to, and the timing couldn't be more perfect. Paul Tremblay. You may have heard of him. (laughs) He was the first guest on Talking Scared all the way back in September 2020, and now he's back with the same squeaky chair, but a brand new surefire novel, The Paul Bearers Club. It's the weirdest coming-of-age tale you'll read this year, and an experimental triumph to boot. We're talking unreliability to the max, literal notes in the margins, all that lovely Tremblay tricksiness. The Paul Bearers Club is also a great avenue into Paul's world and mind, and you'll hear why. And it gives us ample chance to talk about his love of punk, his obsessions with truth and lies, and the fear that inspires his uniquely uncanny set pieces. Oh, and we also talk a little about a certain film that may have been made of a certain book by a certain director. Plot twist. Remember, you can support this show via Patreon for loads of bonus stuff. The link is in the show notes. Also, please bear in mind that I'm in the throes of Covid brain fog, so apologies for any editing details that I've missed on this one. And thanks so very much for listening, whether this is your first episode of Talking Scared or your hundredth. But now, come with me to a graveside in a Massachusetts cemetery. Beware the girl taking photographs, because who knows what else of you she may steal. Let's talk scared. Well, Paul Tremblay, as I live and breathe, welcome to Talking Scared. Thank you. It's an honor to be back. For the, I'm going to uh, steal your headline, but to be back for the 100th episode. Yep, you are the 100th guest, and it couldn't be more fitting because you were the first guest and you, you kind of got this show on the road. You got this train rolling. I think everyone I've spoken to since has been a consequence of having your name on that email. When I when I was badgering people in those first few weeks, you and John Langan opened a lot of doors for me. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to have you back for this centenary episode. It's almost as if you wrote and published a novel purely to help me achieve some neat circularity. <laughs> happy to oblige <laughs> yeah thanks for planning that in advance it's no surprise to most of the horror community you've also got some other announcements recently that give a nice timely spice to this conversation and we'll we'll get to movies that may or may not be being made in due course <laughs> first and foremost though the novel so every horror fan knows when you've got a new book out and it's kind of reached the level of event in publishing with a capital e your latest is the Paul Bearers Club, and by the time this goes live, it will have been loose in the world for about a week. That is correct. That's time enough for some of the more committed listeners who have devoured it, though I will say I, I reckon it will take a further couple of reads to really unearth its, its, <laughs> its many secrets. It's, it's that kind of book. What can you tell us about it to start us off, Paul? So, I mean, I guess... Uh... I've been sort of describing it as like it's presented as a found memoir of a of a of a man who calls himself Art Barbara. That's not his real name, um, and he's you know a fairly loose stand-in for I guess me, um, an alternate reality me. But I mean, Art becomes his own character. But 
because it's a found memoir, you know, I definitely play with the idea that a lot of this could be autobiographical already. I'm blowing the, the elevator pitch, but <laughs> so there's a place to start from it. But I'd say the, the, the book opens with art in high school in the late 1980s. Um, you know, he's not a very popular uh, student, doesn't have much of a social life. Um, you know, he, he not only just, you know, suffering from lack of confidence, but he also has scoliosis, curved spine and, and terrible acne, you know, and s- some of the other usual sort of teen problems. But anyway, he, um, he starts what's called the Paul Bearers Club, hoping to have, you know, to, to boost his college application resume, you know, to give him at least one sort of extracurricular activity. So he starts the Paul Bearers Club, where he volunteers at a local funeral home to serve elderly and uh, homeless that don't have any or very many living relatives, um, you know, which is a sweet thing to do, but also still dead people. So there's definitely room for for creepy things to happen. <laughs> a couple of classmates join, but they don't stick around very long. But there is a, a strange older woman who joins, you know, maybe she's college age. She's not quite sure. And she has sort of like, she's a punk music fan and she has the strange sort of hobby or proclivity to take Polaroid pictures of, of dead people. Um, and she may or may not be a supernatural entity from a somewhat obscure corner of New England folklore. Um, yeah. And so hopefully the fun of the book is that, you know, the whole book is from Art's point of view. It's a found memoir. Uh, Mercy actually found the memoir, this woman who joins the club. But Mercy gets her chance to, to rebut. She, at the end of every art chapter, she writes in, in handwriting her own chapter. And she even takes to, to writing in the margins as well. Yeah, this will be, well, I was going to say this will be the third time that I interview you, Paul, because there was the podcast previously, and then there was a, a magazine article years back. Mm. But actually, by the time this goes live, I think it'll be the fourth interview, because something may come out between now and then. Who who knows? Okay, right. Each time it gets harder, <laughs> because the books just get more slippery. <laughs> I can't think of a, of a book that I found it harder to conceive of, of, of questions that either don't just disappear at their own arse or or get too confused. It, it is a difficult book to talk about in, in the abstract. Let's at least start off with something we can get a firm grip of, I think. Sure. For a start, where did the basic notion of this Paul Bearers Club originate from? Because it's a weird idea to begin with. Mm. Uh, I was lucky it really just fell into my lap. Um, it was either October or November of 2019. Um, and I was at school. Uh, I was pretty much had just finished the edits on survivor song. And so I was sort of like, <laughs> uh, and that was like the end of my book deal with William Moore at the time too. survivor song fulfilled uh, a three book deal. Excuse me. Um, so I was, I want to say I was adrift, but I was like, okay, I need another novel idea. But I was also happy to maybe take a little bit of time off because the previous two novels were so, I don't know, so intense for me to write uh, Survivor Song in the cabinet at the end of the world, you know, because both so heavily engaged with uh, heavily engaged with the anxieties of the now. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So honestly, I was sort of looking for something a little bit different because both of those novels were written over a really compressed timeline, you know, cabin at the end of the world, like a day and Survivor Song was really like six hours. Um, So I don't know. I was like just sitting around <laughs> not waiting for an idea. Cause I had a plan to try to write like a, you know, a screenplay of a short story, but so I wasn't in a rush for a novel just yet. So anyway, Monday morning at the school I teach at, we have a full school assembly, which is <laughs> an interesting idea to make people come in after the weekend and sit for a full morning assembly. But anyway, 
you know, typically kids go up and they make speeches and announcements. So I wasn't really fully paying attention when this one student who was a senior, you know, went up to the podium and said, Hey, you know, I'm starting this new club and it's called the Paul Bearers Club. And I instantly sat up straight in my, you know, from my half asleep uh, prior position. I was like, what, <laughs> what is he starting? And he described it, which is as described in the novel. I thought, wow, that's like a really sweet thing to do for the community. But at the same time, the horror writer in me is like, oh my God, that's amazing. You know, I have to do something with this. Um, you know, and I had no other idea really other than, okay, we're going to use the, you know, the Paul Bearers Club. It's got to be the title. And I guess my first initial response also was because a, a senior had gone up and made this announcement and he was, and I taught this student when he was a freshman, he was a very nice kid, very quiet. You know, he certainly wasn't like one of the loud popular kids at my school kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it instantly made me think about myself in high school. It's like, geez, how would I, you know, would I have done something like that? And so in terms of the book, that was my first two ideas was like, okay, I'm going to put myself, my high school self through this <laughs> and see where it goes. And that sort of gave me permission to look back, you know, be able to t- tell a story instead of like the previous two novels I mentioned, tell a story that maybe takes place over decades and also maybe go a little bit more inward and those things, you know, appeal to me. Um, and I didn't really do anything for a few months. Like I said, I, I tried writing a screenplay for a short story that I'd written, you know, and then the, the pandemic came. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't, you know, didn't write a whole lot in February of March, you know, the year that the, the pandemic storm sort of arrived. So it was really almost like four or five months later when I finally sat down to try to figure out, okay, what is this novel going to be? So it's actually a real thing, this Paul Berry's Club. Is it? Is it a thing that people do more widely, or is it just this one guy you had the idea? I, there are definitely, I think, others. Uh, I, you know, I don't. I remember searching, you know, seeing if there were other Paul Berry's Clubs around, and there definitely were. You know, fr- from what I can tell, it wasn't this one student's, you know, idea just by himself. I mean, it's it's an awful thing to call it creepy because it's a really nice thing to do for people, <laughs> it but it, it has a connotation, you know. So that that's one idiosyncratic strand of this then we add in the punk rock scene which is really quite prevalent as a as a theme in this book mm-hmm. um and then there's some kind of authentic and by authentic i mean as an historical basis new england vampire law um I- i'm guessing the music is based on your own taste because you write about it quite passionately but <laughs> but what was the inspiration for going after the legend of mercy brown um for me it was uh it was just discovering her story. Actually, I wasn't aware of Mercy Brown's story at all until I was sort of flailing around, like, you know, what sort of quasi or ambiguous supernatural element could I have like happen at, you know, at the Paul Bearers Club. So um, just, I think uh, just some, some internet searching, I you know stumbled over her story, which, you know, I was like, geez, why hadn't I heard about this before? And it, it certainly has gained a lot more notice. I don't want to say popularity necessarily, but certainly a lot more notice within the past like five to 10 years that I was just unaware of. So once I read about her story, I was like, Oh, okay. I'm definitely going to use this because it has the historical context. You know, it could make for, you know, a fun, hopefully fun, ambiguous take on whether or not this woman that joined the club and, you know, sort of befriends art for 30 years, you know, is she related to Mercy Brown in some way or is she not? Well, yeah, well, just to get across the listeners' early doors, that I've, I've referenced vampire lore there. This is in no way, if, if it even is a vampire story, which right. is open to a debate, it's in no way your <laughs> typical vampire story. So we haven't really done any spoilers there at all. But with that in mind, you're an author who I always think of as generally kind of avoiding tropes 
or, or you tend to deconstruct them to the point that they're kind of unrecognizable. So I was surprised to see you take on vampire lore because it, <laughs> it feels a little bit route one for you. Um, I don't know. I, I, so like a lot of my books, I feel like have you know, I don't know if I've purposefully taken on a trope, but you know, a head full of ghosts obviously messes around with possession stories, cabin at the end of the world with, with home invasion, you know, survivor song is sort of like a zombie adjacent thing. And uh, you mentioned him earlier, but my good friend, John Langan has been after me for years and years. Like, Wait, where's your vampire story? Like, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, once I discovered Mercy Brown and figured out that a lot of that was going to click or, or hopefully click in, in the novel, it's like, okay, here's, you know, hopefully a different run at, you know, the vampire lore. And like you said, I mean, it's even stated in the book within the first, like, you know, 30 or 40 pages when the history of Mercy Brown is discussed that, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's certainly not a, a Stoker vampire, um, you know, that that's, <laughs> that's being discussed, you know, in the book. Yeah. And I, I, I'm willfully not, I, I'm willfully not elaborating on the story of Mercy Brown because I think it, it steals something from the book to talk about it. So if, if listeners are interested, they can go and Google that or they can just find out about it in the pages of your right. story. Um, but yeah, so when you say that Survivor Song was zombie adjacent, I would say this is even more vampire adjacent than that. It's <laughs> you know, it's no pun intended. It's kind of in the margins. Yeah, ah, I like that. Which brings me to the third and final question about the basic setup. Because what I'm basically trying to do here is is create a little structure by which we can discuss this and the listener understands it. You know, um, so we've we've got the Paul Bearers Club, we've got the vampires, we've got punk rock, which we'll return to. The final thing is the how and why you decided to go for this particular textual form. Because you've always experimented with that aspect of fiction. But but this is next level. Mm-hmm. I, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a sucker for, you know, sort of fun or interesting or, you know, or different ways of presenting a narrative. You know, the, the, the important part for me, though, as the writer, is I'm always trying to think, like, yeah, that's really cool. But, you know, I just don't want it to be a gimmick. You know, it has to mm-hmm. be part of the theme of the story it has to be there for a reason. So for me, I mean, a little bit was just an exercise in logic. I'm like, okay, it's going to be a found memoir of this, of this character who found it, you know, why do they find it? Um, and I thought it was actually also like a fun way to build this character that, you know, she couldn't resist commenting not only at the end of every chapter, um, but also like within the, mar- within the margins itself, like, like she was acting as an editor. So to me, I, I found that like, just, that approach to the narrative was incredibly exciting. And was one of the reasons why I wanted to, to do the book um, was to, you know, sort of explore that and, and hopefully use it to, to my advantage, both in terms of building the characters, both art and mercy, but also, you know, to build, you know, some of the ambiguity in the book, you know, I don't think this is a spoiler either, but I think, you know, there is an answer by the time you end the book, or maybe there isn't, I don't know. It depends, I guess, on your point of view. Um, but honestly, uh, you know, the short, the short version is, oh, it's a found memoir. Who found it? And like, what would they do with it? And I pretty quickly decided that Marcy would, that Mercy, excuse me, would, uh, would write all over it. One of the things that both delighted me and frustrated me is how Mercy, this kind of editor in the margins, she preempts the reader's interpretation. So to give you an example, there are loads of early Easter eggs and nods to vampires Things like Art's Doctor is called Dr. Seward, like the character from Dracula. Right. That's a fairly obvious one. One that I thought I was really clever about was Art himself has Marfan syndrome, 
um, which I believe was a condition that the actor Max Shrek suffered from. And he was the guy who played the first mm. screen vampire in Nosferatu. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I thought I was so smart working that out. And I, I was on holiday. And I turned to my wife and I was like really smug. I'm like, <laughs> I've worked this book out. I know where it's going. And then a few pages later in her annotations, Mercy basically lays all of that on the page. And it just makes you, as a reader, kind of redundant. <laughs> <laughs> And there's some, that's a fairly trivial example, but the, as the book goes on, she performs more and more of this interpretive role. What was it like writing a book and deconstructing it at the same time? Honestly, that part was kind of fun. I mean, just to try to anticipate like what a reader might react to it. Um, and then <laughs> not to be like, aha, I got you, but like, hey, I know what you're thinking. Hmm. You know, cause I think you know, that happens a little bit in the head full of ghosts, hopefully too. Like that's part of the, the role of the blogger in that novel. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, part of mercy's role, I don't know if that's her role, but like, you know, part of the fun of her, she does get to point out, Hey, <laughs> you know, Dr. Seward and, you know, jokes about Renfield eating roaches and things like that. Um, you know, those parts were definitely fun. And, I know as far as like all these things lining up with, with vampires, like part of that is just like being, you know, being open to pay attention, pay, you know, paying attention to the general monster that the vampire is no pun intended or pun intended that, you know, the vampire lore is in, you know, in, in our culture or in so many cultures, it's just, you know, we're so inundated with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and even things like you mentioned the Marfan syndrome, that's just sort of a happy coincidence because, um, there's so many things were happy coincidences, things that, you know, I, that have happened in my life or I've dealt with sort of line up with some of the vampire lore, like, you know, the scoliosis and Marfan syndrome stuff a little bit. I don't have full Marfan's. It, it was thought I might've had it when I was a teenager. Um, I had, a, you know, a DNA, mar- uh, you know, workup fairly recently. And I have quite a few of the genetic markers for Marfan's, but I don't have all of them uh, happily, but it's also... <laughs> They don't know what I have. Essentially, it's like oh, like such an insignificantly small portion of the population has your genetic markup. We really can't say, you know, if you're going to be leaning more towards Marfans or away from it. Uh, but anyway, so just like when you mentioned, I didn't necessarily have in mind that uh, the actor Max Shrek had Marfans, but you know, but the idea of someone with Marfans with really long, you know, fingers and often with you know with the back problems that make you look stooped over and and bad eyesight and etc. You know it when I was doing the book, I was like, oh, this lines up perfectly. The only horror book I've ever really seen that does that sort of self-appraising marginalia is House of Leaves. Right. And famously, that book begins with the dedication, this is not for you. I say famously, I'm an obsessive fan. So, you know, to people like me, famously, begins with this line, this is not for you. The Paul Bearers Club begins with a kind of similarly belligerent line. It starts with this line that says, I am not Art Barbera. Right. Is there any influence there, Paul? Because, for example, there's also reference to a Minotaur, which seems to link the two books. Was mm. was was House of Leaves in the back of any of this when you were thinking of the structure? Oh, sure. I think. Uh, I mean, House of Leaves has always sort of been in the back of my head for you know ever since you know I've I've managed to read it twice. I do love that book, and to me, that's the shining example of if you're going to use you know typographical or narrative tricks or formats, it has to be there to serve the story. It just can't be a trick because I have read other books and I'm not going to name them mm-hmm. that I felt had some, 
narrative sort of conceit that it, it didn't feel like it fit the story. You know, they just thought it was a cool idea, which, you know, mm-hmm. on some level I also enjoy as well. But uh, yeah, so in terms of the marginalia, definitely, you know, House of Leaves is like, okay, you know, if he was able to do that, hopefully my publisher will do the same thing. That's interesting about the first line. I definitely, at least not consciously, was thinking about uh, House of Leaves first line. But the idea of, you know, this is not for you. Um, when I've been signing books lately, sort of cheekily, I've been saying, you know, when I sign the book for somebody, I say, everything in here is the truth, especially the lies. <laughs> um, and I have to admit, that's a little bit of a crib from uh, Stephen Graham Jones, um, who, you know, obviously a brilliant writer. He's so brilliant. I've, I've learned from his book inscriptions, in fact. When I first met Stephen um, in like mid-2000s, Every time he signed a book for me, he would write, this is this one's pure autobiography. And I never really understood what he meant. I was like, Stephen, <laughs> this book features like a time traveling camopede. What do you mean by this is autobiography? And then, I don't know. I sort of got what, I, I figured out what he meant by that. You know, especially Paul Bearers, which is so autobiographical. Um, <laughs> I think when I sent Stephen uh, a signed copy, I definitely wrote this one is autobiography, just to be funny. <laughs> well, well, that's something I meant to ask you. Now you've written this book. Could you still write a biography? Is there anything left? You know, honestly, that like when I finished, that was a worry. I was telling people because so many of my other books, you know, all of them, I've, I feel like I use myself a lot uh, or things I've experienced or family and friends have experienced. And I told a few friends, more than a few friends, like, man, I, I worried that I emptied the bucket on this book. Like, you know, what, you know, what the hell am I going to write about now? But, you know, and then like a, a year or two passes and you live more life and, <laughs> you know, there's stuff there for you to use. So um, it is a concern, but I also do think in some ways, you know, this book feels like a transition. I don't know what, what to necessarily given that, you know, I spent most of my horror career with starting with a head full of ghosts, you know, writing about families, writing about parents dealing with kids and vice versa. And there's some of that in the pallbearers, but it's more adult child dealing with adult, uh, you know, older, um, older parent. You know, just, you know, my own kids, now that they're, you know, just about both going to be in college next year or one out of college, it's like, geez, am I going to write like empty nest fiction now? Like part of this is, you know, I felt like this was like a, something I had to write, not to clear, to clear space, but I don't know. It does feel like it's a little bit of a, you know, after this, I'm not quite sure there's going to be some stuff that's different, which, you know, I'm excited about too. Cause I, you know, I consciously try not to write the same book every time. I am I'm happy you brought up this sense of like trajectory and this being a pivot book and a something new. Uh because I I've read each of your novels since A Head Full of Ghosts. And it, it feels like you are the horror author whose career has has fit my adult reading, you know, the, the, the kind of the overlap of years. It fits my adult reading. So I've got a good sense, I think. And the general trajectory of your work felt like you were heading towards simpler, more explicable narratives. Yeah. So granted, there's still plenty of ambiguity in something like the, like cabin. Yeah. Right. But, but that book and survivor song are much more easily reconciled than head full of ghosts or mm-hmm. disappearance at devil's rock for a start. I suppose, do you agree with that premise? And if so, where does Paul Berry's club fit in that trajectory? <laughs> Yeah, I think I do uh, agree with that premise. Um, and certainly how, I mean, Cabin in 
and Survivor Song both, you could say, have almost like a thriller structure at, at certain points in terms of obviously the the ticking clock, you know, the amount of time that both sort of take place over. Um, and then, you know, and that's partly why I was sort of yearning to do something that you know took a, took place over many decades as opposed to one day or six hours. Mm-hmm. And actually that was one of the challenges of the book <laughs> at times is like, man, you know, cause for those, for the previous two books, cabin and survivor song, you know, I could write about five, you know, I could write about a singular moment for pages and pages. It was like, man, I really can't do that all the time for Paul bears club. If it's going to, if it's going to span over 30 years, you know, we'll be here for 2000 pages. And I certainly did not want to write <laughs> uh, a 2000 page novel. Um, I know in some ways, I sort of th- thought of this book or viewed it as a little bit of combining the tone of the little sleep and head full of ghosts. Um, but I also have this weird thing where like, I like to try to think of the previous book that came out before this, that I wrote before this as some sort of springboard or, or maybe not a springboard, but they have a connection in some way. Okay. So for me, survivor song, it was about uh, a very positive friendship, right? Very strong you know, friendship, you know, based in love. And, you know, and this friendship was good for both characters. It was very good for Natalie and Romola and Paul Bear's club is like, Oh, I'm writing about a, a much different kind of friendship. You know, the emotions will be equally strong. But, you know, maybe these two are their friends who probably, you know, they're not very good for each other. Maybe they shouldn't be friends, but yet they can't quit being friends, even though they know at times they bring out, not only they do bring out the best in each other, but they also bring out the worst. And I was really sort of fascinated by that idea of like how that, how that relationship would, would go, you know, through the years, you know, even with gaps in between where they're not constantly around each other. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, there's one point part where Mercy kind of gets annoyed that she's being used as a metaphor for depression. Um, right. But it's much more if you were to take for argument's sake that she's not supernatural and there are no supernatural elements. Mm-hmm. The effect on art is that he is feeling the the effects of a toxic friendship, isn't it? You yeah. know, if you take away the supernatural altogether, and then it got me thinking about: Have you heard about this this concept of emotional vampires? Yes. You know, like somebody who has a certain um, I hate the word energy. People use the word energy really piss me off, but for want of a better word, energy. Yeah. Um, people people who you know sap your 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 will and your fervor and your potency through through emotional means and and i kept thinking about that as another spin on on what the vampirism could be in this story absolutely um no i I agree 100 percent. at the same time like i feel like you know mercy's really honest like in her marginalia um you know as uh you know we, we might have talked about you know, the idea that, you know, she's telling the reader like, Hey, look at this, you know, she's being super honest. I think, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think she's ever really, you know, outright. She's never really outright lying about the relationship she has with art with, with I mean, the possible exception of some sort of vampirism is happening. Right. But in terms of like, uh, you know, the, the emotional exchange between them two, like she, she's really honest and where sometimes art, is and isn't, you know, and maybe not purposefully so. I don't know if that's sort of a wishy-washy thing to say, but I think that's accurate. No, I think that's at the absolute heart of the book because in the very one of the very first things Art says is that he will tell the complete truth. He says, mm. I'll be painfully honest. And I thought that how we take that statement seems to colour <laughs> our entire reading of the book. And I'm assuming that line isn't right there at the start by accident. I'm assuming that is very much an orchestrated thing. 
No, for sure. Um, you know, I think most every reader, I would assume, like, you know, if you're reading a first person narrative, <laughs> um, it's inherently, um, you know, it's inherently unreliable, you know, and especially like, you know, the person that you first meet that tells you, hey, you know, I'll always tell you the truth. Well, why do you need to tell me that up front? Mm-hmm. You know, why do you think I assume that you wouldn't be telling me the truth? Um, but it's, it's like you say that, that it's intentional or unintentional mistruth, because it, it seems to me that there are two kinds of ambiguity possible in this novel. There's there's kind of misconception and there's fictionalization because for example, when it comes to this question of, of whether mercy has aged at all, because art's insistent that she stays right. the same, you know, and that's a clue mm-hmm. to her vampirism. Um, we can read that as either him creating a fiction or just relating an honest misapprehension of the truth. And it seems Absolutely. that, that that's the tension as well. And not, not just whether or not Mercy is a vampire or a supernatural creature, but whether art is lying or just wrong. Right. No, I think even Mercy, like she says that on the second page, like after art's, you know, funny intro to the book, you know, I think she even mentioned something about, Hey, you know, just because our recollections don't match up, doesn't mean one of us are lying kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so instead of like using a prologue, but like definitely using the, their first two entries into the book as a way of setting up some of the ground rules as there being no ground rules for what's happening next. It feels like, I mean, we've talked this before you and I, when I've spoken to you, but this vein of fallibility just seems to pervade all of your work. And, and I know it's a broad question, but but why? What is it about that that is the theme that you keep coming back to, both in the both in the subject of the story and the way you deliver it? It seems like you're just obsessed with the the nature of truth and our access to it. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that who isn't obsessed with truth? I don't know. I mean, especially in this age of misinformation, where it's harder to mm-hmm. you know, on some things, it's harder to figure out what the truth is, or you have to put more work into it. Um, I know I, I think, but it, it more goes back to what you're saying, like the fallibility of characters. I'm, I'm, I don't know, as a reader, I'm much more interested in characters that aren't, you know, superheroes, not necessarily saying, you know, graphic novels, but aren't like these, you know, pitch perfect people who never make a mistake. You know, all of us make mistakes and make terrible mistakes. And I'm interested in the decisions they make after like a terrible mistake or interested in decisions that reflect, you know, this is the best this is the best that I thought I could do with the information that I had. Um, uh, to me, that's, you know, the human part of fiction. That's the human part of being human is realizing, you know, we're all flawed, you know, and this is not some great secret, but you know, my hope is to always have that as a reader. I want that reflected in when I read one of my favorite kind of novels, uh, which we don't see a ton of, I guess, in horror. Uh, maybe we could think of, you could help me think of some examples, but <laughs> I love what I like to playfully call like the first person asshole narrator, <laughs> like the narrator that's really not very good at whatever it is they're doing in that book, but they're still trying. Um, you know, I think of something like uh, William Kennedy O'Toole's, oh, yeah, yeah. what's the novel set in New Orleans? Do you know the novel I'm talking about? Uh, Confederacy um, of Dunces. Yes. Confederacy of Dunces. You know, things like that, where it's like this first person narrative that makes you sort of cringe on what they're doing. But hopefully, you know, at the same time, like you, you can't help but be interested in what they're doing, even if like you find them sort of self-pitying or annoying. And um, I know I think that also tests like that kind of narrator, I think really, I don't know, I like books that make me 
that, that give me a test. And that's not to say like a test to figure out the plot, but like sort of, I don't know, test my empathy in some way or, or test my ability to, to connect with other characters who not even are unsavory, but are just making poor decisions. And I don't know, like um, those are the characters and people I'm interested in. I mean, to give you a horror example, the one that comes straight to mind is Luna Park by Brett and Ellis. Mm-hmm. Um, have you read that? Uh, I have uh, a long time ago, but I have, yeah. yes. Because I, I think that's very much in, in your kind of ballpark because of the whole weird meta thing it does. And it is interesting you talk about arseholes because I've been a bit reluctant <laughs> to say now about, about art because uh-huh. you said he's so much based in you, but he got right on my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I did wonder, from a writing perspective, you, you've, for a start, you've talked about how the move away from action-driven and, you know, towards interiority in in this novel. Um, right. Was it tough to maintain that interiority, particularly with via art, because he's got this very fussy narrative voice <laughs> and it, it feels pretty claustrophobic in, in, art's, mm. in art's head at times. And I think at one point, Mercy even says to the, in the marginalia, readers yeah. will only have so much patience for your depression. Right. <laughs> what, what what was it like inhabiting that textual space? Because it was hard to read at times. So I imagine writing in that world. More times than not, I had a lot of fun with it. But there were some times in you know probably the darkest times of the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Where the one of the few times in my life as a writer, I skipped ahead. I never do skip ahead. But like uh, I know, and one of the you know the lower times of one of the many lower times of the pandemic where I just didn't feel like doing much writing at all. You know, I I'd skipped ahead and wrote some of the, the parts where art was displaying the most depressive sort of symptoms, you know, after, you know, I don't want to spoil like sort of what event sort of, yeah, you I know, know what you mean though. Yeah. that. And that I, I'd written and I it didn't keep nearly all of it. You know, I cut quite a, a bit of that stuff out. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, art was, sort of purposefully to be self-pitying. You know, I also view, you know, my voices aren't in Mercy's together somewhere. Like they're, they're sort of both, but I, I got to say it is a little weird. <laughs> and I have to remind myself that it was just a book because, you know, I do like identify with the art to see like people mm-hmm. say, Oh, I found art really annoying. I'm like, Oh man. <laughs> Quite aside from, you know, being annoyed by him, et cetera. Um, <laughs> there is still genuine humor in the Paul yeah. Bearers club. Um, and the roster of punk bands that Art has played with is right. laugh out loud funny. There's a sequence where he <laughs> talks about this decade of playing in bar bands um, yeah. in, in, in the Providence area. And I particularly liked the band with the obnoxious swagger, but whose Canadian lead singer kept apologizing for the lyrics after each song. <laughs> <laughs> that made me laugh. <laughs> yeah. But, you, I mean, you've talked elsewhere about how closely horror and comedy are aligned, yet this, right. in my opinion is your first funny book. Have I changed or have you? I mean, I think we've both changed or everybody has changed, but I, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, some people, it's funny. Some people tell me they find a head full of ghosts really funny. I'm like, really? Oh, okay. (laughs) You know, I wasn't necessarily anticipating that. You know, my first two crime novels that came out, you know, five, six years before Paul Bear's Club, you know, I definitely messed around with humor. And actually my first attempts at novels, um, 
you know, and this was like in the early to mid 2000s, all my first attempts at novels were not horror, but were sort of, you know, uh, darkly comedic in some way, or at least attempted to be. And um, I don't know, it, for initially it struck me as strange, like, oh man, whenever I do short stories, they're all horror. And whenever I try something longer, you know, it goes towards, you know, satire in some way. I am a big Kurt Vonnegut fan. Um, so, you know, obviously I think, you know, as you alluded to, horror and humor are, you know, and this is not a, a groundbreaking <laughs> statement. Other people have said it, but, you know, horror and humor are so closely related, right? You can react to life's absurdities either by laughing at it or laughing ruefully or, you know, being terrified. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was excited at the, at the prospect of trying to write something that hope, where I hoped that the funny parts would be funny and the creepy parts would be creepy. Um, yeah, because when you say horror comedy, most people think of film and most people think of movies that are wall to wall silly, right? The, the source yeah. of the humor is the actual horror. And I didn't want that to be the case. Uh, I just want to try to have both. I mean, there are a few, there's not a lot of movies or books that do that. I mean, I can't think of a ton off the top of my head. Um, I was going to mention, uh, it's terrible that I cannot remember uh, the Australian woman's name, but she wrote a book that's criminally overlooked called uh, a Bu- uh, The Bus on Thursday. Um, and it's such a funny and you know horrific book. Uh, very strange. Uh, and that definitely fits into my, my love of <laughs> asshole narrators. <laughs> Um, that you can't help but sort of fall in love with. So it'd be something for readers. Uh, you know, I think it was published like five or six years ago, maybe even less. I've just Googled it and it's it's by Shirley Barrett. I've I've never heard of that book. I'm going to check it out. Um, yeah, yeah. You say about horror comedies. I, I agree with you. I think horror comedy as a designation is the hardest, hardest line to walk because in almost all cases, they're either too funny or too scary and one Mm. negates the other. Um, and my to toss my hat in that ring um, would be to say T. Kingfisher, who I think mm-hmm. can be genuinely, genuinely unsettling, and then make you laugh out loud on the next page. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this this is the same thing, but in a very different way because the horrors of this book, I keep coming back to this, are not the horrors of a of a typical horror novel. And you can help me with this now because. <laughs> I've been trying my hardest to, to articulate this, and I think the only thing I can do is throw it over to you because your work confounds my critical vocabulary, right? <laughs> wow. And, and, and this, this book, more than any other, you deal in this, this flavour of unease that I just can't articulate. And, and there are many, many cases in this book, but to, to take one that we can talk about... Mm-hmm. This scene with a floating piece of furniture, this dresser. Right. So all the listeners needs to know is that Art goes to stay with Mercy for a couple of nights and he she points out that the, the, the dresser um, appears to be floating off the, off the floor. And in, in fact, it, the, the implication is that it's in some way affixed to the wall. Mm-hmm. And he becomes a bit obsessed with this and, and nothing concrete happens. And initially, it's just like an observation that worms its way into right. Art's head. And there's nothing overtly scary about it, yet it's so disquieting. And it, it, it put me in mind of a slightly more pared-down version of the scene with the playhouse in Head Full of Ghosts, where there is mm. nothing that you could point to and go, that's terrifying. What are you doing in those scenes, Paul? How do they come to your head? How do they work in your head? How do you put them on the page? So I would say in general, like I've always admired 
you know, it's almost like an old saw, like particularly when people talk about Stephen King, they say, oh, Stephen King, he makes like everyday situations or objects terrifying, um, which he does for the most part. But there are also times, and I think Stephen would freely admit that something like the Tommy Knockers, where there's like a, a flying soda machine, right? That chases mm-hmm. someone through the woods that, you know, doesn't quite work. Um, but also like, hey, he went for it, right? <laughs> so I don't know, like I, I do love that idea of like trying to make the everyday, you know, using the everyday to show that slip into liminal space, right? Like the, just being unsure of, of things. Um, so I will say specific to the dresser, two things. And one, there's a short story that I read years and years ago, and I cannot remember the name of it, nor the author. Uh, and I feel terrible about it. Hopefully a listener will figure it out and maybe tweet it to you or us later. But there's a short story where it's going to sound goofy in my like very spotty retelling, but there's like a room full of clothes and the clothes end up being terrifying. They're just like, you know, clothes like draped around a messy room, you know, and something happens with them. And it sounds really goofy when you say it that way, mm-hmm. but that author managed to make that feel as how you just described as being just deeply unsettling. Um, so I've always sort of like in the back of my head, like, man, you know, if you could ever try to do that with everyday objects. But there was uh, in 2018, <laughs> after Cabinet at the End of the World came out, um, or actually right before, my family and I rented a cabin in the middle of the woods. It wasn't like as remote as described in the novel. So we were okay. There were other cabins near us. But um, our first night there was like midnight, I'm going to bed and my kids are like, hey, dad, come in here and see this. So already I'm freaked out because I'm a terrible scaredy cat. So I go into their room and like, look at the dresser. What's wrong with it? I'm like, I don't want to look at the dresser. <laughs> I'm saying this to like, you know, my, my teenage kids. So eventually it's like, what? Like, you know, seeing the legs, it was as described in the book, this dresser was for some reason, you know, screwed into the wall. So it was uh, all four legs were off the floor. You know, we were like, oh, it's a kid's dresser. It was that a way to, you know, baby proof sort of the house. So like the baby wouldn't like tip the dresser over, but why does it have to be off the floor? Um, so even like in that real life instance, like we think we know why it's, you know, screwed into the wall, but we don't know why for sure. Um, so that I, I knew I always wanted to do something with that. Um, I had a terrible short story planned that I was going to get my revenge on John Langan with <laughs> that floating dresser, but it never happened. But it ended up coming back to Paul Bear's Club. Okay. Because, yeah, there is something about that. I, as, as I've made quite clear on this podcast over the years, my anxieties know no bounds. And and quite often what, what makes me unsettled is the sense mm. that I don't fully understand the situation. So if I hear a noise and I can't pin down where it's coming from, that bothers me. I don't know why, because I don't know what the threat is that I'm afraid of. You know what I mean? And I remember right. once when I was a little boy lying in bed and I had sort of like mock pine walls on the bottom half of my bedroom. Um, sounds classy, listeners, right? And there were the, <laughs> there were these knots in this wood. And one night I was looking, about 12, I was looking at the wall. And all of a sudden, these these knots seemed to take the shape of like, you know, like a gray alien's face, like with the big angled yes. eyes. Mm-hmm. And it really freaked me out. Now, no part of me thought that there was anything yeah. weird. Do you know what I mean? It was just, it was just some knots. But I got this really pa- like panicky feeling that I couldn't makes like almost as if the world didn't make sense for a second you know i think that's it yeah and i feel like you nail that in your fiction this idea of the world just going for a second off kilton and snapping back in but it leaves you irrevocably uncertain about reality maybe you know right 
I started this question saying I couldn't articulate it, and you've led me to to an articulation. You articulated it beautifully. <laughs> that, that's what it makes me feel like. And, and in this book, it goes from, as we're saying, comedy and horror, it goes from these really lighthearted asides about the, the punk scene to these scenes of, they're almost like reading a panic attack. <laughs> Thank you. No, it, you know, like you hit the nail on the head. Like the idea to me is like when you lose that, that momentarily or that assumption that you, you know what to expect, right? You go through your life and you've got a schedule, you've got a plan. Like you walk into a room, there's dressers and beds, you know what to expect. And then, you know, that moment where there's that, just that tilt to like, oh, wait a minute, I don't know what's going on. Like, I mean, to me, that feels like a very lizard brain response to, you know, you, you have, the only way to get through day-to-day life is to make assumptions about how things work. And even if it's something as simple as, hey, there's dresser should be on the floor. Like that is, as you said, very unmooring. In your previous work, the focus of the your kind of trademark ambiguity was largely on the unreliability of media. So I'm thinking, mm. um, you know, Survivor Song, you've got that great facsimile of social media and disinformation, you know, and then right. in Cabin, you've got you've got news media that 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 can either inform this apocalypse or it could be something different, you know, and then obviously head, head full of ghosts is like, you know, it's all up for grabs, isn't it? Any kind of media you can, you can go for is, is in flux. This book barely touches on media and it seems much more concerned with the fallibility of memory. Are Mm. they, are they different threats? Do they function in different ways? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they do function in different ways. Um, and, you know, I kind of like imagine the book itself as the media artifact that you couldn't necessarily mm-hmm. trust, you know, in, in how it's presented, right? Because it's got Mercy yeah, commenting yeah. Yeah, at the end point. of every chapter in, in the margins themselves. So the book itself, you know, it's obviously not a social media website. It's a book. Um, but yeah, the idea that you can be given two different perspectives, you know, it's the old Rashomon thing, right? Like you get multiple mm-hmm. perspectives, you know, how you know, eyewitnesses are usually considered to be not that reliable because, you know, your perception, um, you know, so as a, as a fiction writer, to me, that just seems like there's so many wonderful opportunities to use that to your advantage. A few answers ago, Paul, you, you mentioned uh, Cabin at the end of the world. And of course, the Paul Bearers Club wasn't your only exciting bit of news this early summer because word has found its way out into the world that, that Cabin has been adapted and by M. Night Shyamalan, no less. For those who were bought, like born in a barn, that's the person who directed such minor things as The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. Um, that's happening. How much can you say about that, Paul? Um, so, one, it's very exciting. You know, so I can't... And I won't say too much about, like, the actual story itself other than just to say, you know, I am super excited. Um I did get to visit set and everyone for a couple of days back in May and uh, you know, everyone from the cast tonight, uh, the crew, everyone was super friendly, super enthusiastic. You know, the actors have all read the book and that was really cool. Um, you know, I guess the only thing I would say is, you know, I think this is going to be a really beautifully filmed, beautifully acted uh, movie uh, and I'm excited for people to see it, you know, and it's, it's certainly, I guess the last thing I would say is, you know, it's, it's definitely M Knight's vision of, of this story. You know, it, it's sort of, uh, you know, there are definitely a lot of similarities, but it's also his own, his own take on sort of the, the setup kind of thing. 
I mean, I'm good. This is where I'm going to continue to ask you questions, and you continue to basically bat them back at me. But how yeah. how does it feel to have someone else telling your story? Really, he's not going to hear this. How does it feel to have someone else take your baby and tell it their own way? <laughs> um, it's a it's a weird set of feelings, to be honest. Um, you know, it's incredibly exciting. I mean, um, my my first. You know, in terms of horror, anyway, my first love was always horror movies. Like I didn't start reading until much later, embarrassingly later in age. When I say reading, reading for pleasure. So you know, movies to me was my my first. You know, up through age twenty two, my lesson in how to tell story was really film. Um, so it's it's incredible. And as a writer who's written many, you know, written more than one book that you know <laughs> uses the influence of other books, other movies, other media. You know, it would be highly hypocritical of me to be like, oh, I'm so annoyed if, you know, someone takes my book and makes something different out of it. You know, there's a big part of me that's really interested in like that sort of that lens of not only influence, but that lens of someone else taking, you know, the bones of a story and and creating something different or adjacent to it, you know, use it, you know, using it. Um, But also like, I mean, no writer is egoless and I would include myself in that list. you know, it is going to be a little strange and maybe even hard, you know, when there are differences in the stories, uh, you know, just to sort of see that. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of the, to the, to the, to the feels because I haven't, uh, you know, there's still a long way to go. I mean, they've wrapped filming, but you know, obviously I haven't seen the movie yet. Um, I don't know. It'd be interesting. Cause that, let me say this. I don't know if I, this is too much ramble for you, but, uh, a few years ago when I was at, the international uh, arts and ICFA international convention for fantastic arts, mm-hmm. um, which is usually in Florida. Uh, when I went to that once, I saw a panel of four different writers, uh, all who had been adapted, right. Their, their works have been adapted and, and hearing them talk, it was a lot of fun. It was also a little bit of a bummer because three of the four panelists were really not happy with their experience uh, with good reason after hearing their stories. Um, but, you know, the one that was super happy, as he should have been, was Ted Chang, because, you know, I thought like his short story, uh, the, yeah. you know, the story of your life and the, the movie Arrival, or, or that's a brilliant adaptation and they both sort of work off each other very well. But it is a little bit sobering, like the idea, you know, for anyone, you know, who's just write, writing fiction, you know, the idea that once this movie gets made <laughs> in the eyes of the larger culture, that's the story, right? Millions of people are going to see that movie. Uh, as opposed to, let's say, like a hundred. Well, I'll round up. Let's say two hundred thousand people have maybe read Cabin, um, mm-hmm. you know, or listened to it in some form. You know, so it, 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 that those the juxtapos- the juxtaposition of those numbers is a little bit startling. Um, you know, as the you know as the as the writer, I guess. Yeah, I, I just think that the the, the two hundred thousand people who've read it. They can never, no one can ever take that story away from them. Right. You know what I mean? Sure. I always think that about adaptations. I always think, obviously it's different for you because you're actually the, the, the father of this baby. But I always think people who love something and then they remake it. I'm always like, you can still watch the first one. They haven't, they haven't right. got rid of it. You know, just don't watch the remake. Like everyone yeah. needs to chill out. But I, I can't imagine it's different when you actually created the damn thing. Um, like, <laughs> I mean, it, the last thing I'll say is it's a very, very dark story to adapt for a mainstream audience. Mm. I was quite shocked by the pairing of of director and um, 
and 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 story because Shyamalan is is known for relatively accessible, family friendly, within reason, you know, like mm. dark tales, and this is well as a notoriously shocking ending. Um, doesn't really lend itself to this PG-13 Bloomhouse style that seemed yeah. designed to frighten without frightening away audiences. And, you know, I know you can't say too much, but have they had to pare things down? Do you think it would still challenge audiences? Oh, I think, yeah, without saying too much, um, I mean, I think this is going to get an R rating. I don't think there's any question. Good, good. <laughs> so I don't think you have to worry about the PG-13 side of things. Um, oh, I think this movie is going to fuck people up. Oh, that's what we like to hear. Certainly, certainly, you know, in the first couple of acts, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, fr- from yeah. from what I know, um, and it stars Rupert Rupert Grint of um, Ron Weasley fame, which is just amazing. Correct. It's really strange. The other day, I was thinking, was he gone? And I, today, I checked out IMDb, and there he is in, in this movie. So that's that's cheering yeah. me up. I, I like. I've got a time for him. <laughs> Quite aside from all the excitement about M Night Shyamalan's film adaptation of Cabin. I continue to yearn for Head Full of Ghosts, the movie. Um, mm. Last I heard, Scott Cooper, who directed Antlers, was pushing on with it. Are there any further updates, Paul? Um, so he he's no longer uh, on. He's no longer attached to it. They did hire, you know, I, they haven't announced two yet. So, but th- there are some new directors, and the, the screenplay is undergoing uh, yet another rewrite. But you know, hopefully, they're close to to getting like once. Cause this rewrite is being overseen by the new directors. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy with the direction of this rewrite. It, it's going to bring back um, the reality TV element, which was missing from all other iterations, which didn't quite make sense to me, frankly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, it's still in the works. Yeah. It's a little weird. <laughs> uh, can it be a cursed movie before it's even a movie? <laughs> it's been <laughs> under option since 2015, you know, and you know, I don't want to say in the defense of the producers because they don't have to defend anything, but you know they 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 it came close multiple times to actually being a a movie, um, including it probably would have filmed the summer of 2020 if not everything had happened. Um, uh, so, but anyway, yeah, yeah, well, it's still it's still in the works. Um, so we'll see. Hopefully, cabin kind of goes mega, and then everyone just goes adapt everything, and then um, and then it all happens. That's that should. That, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, that's what's going to happen. Let's face it. Um, also, just as a side, I loved the the little reference to what I assume is the reality TV show from Headful of Ghosts that was in Paul Bearer's Club. Yeah. Yes, there's a, a couple of references <laughs> uh, in Paul Bearer's Club, uh, and even maybe a, a character from uh, a Headful of Ghosts sne- sneaks his way into Paul Bearer's Club a little bit. I missed that. Oh yeah, I mean, I guess it's not a huge deal, but uh, a priest that go- the priest that goes to that goes to the you know it's in the first hundred. Oh pages. really? Yeah, yeah, the priest that shows up is Father Wanderly. You know, the, a much younger version oh, of Father wow. Wanderly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's too cool. I love yeah. shit like that. Um, <laughs> what are you working on now or next, Paul? So, um, so next year um, they're publishing another short story collection. Uh, which frankly was a little bit of a surprise to me because <laughs> <laughs> when I pitched the Paul Bears Club way back in spring of 2020, I figured they would offer a two book deal and they wanted, and I didn't mention anything about a short story collection and they wanted the Paul Bears, a short story collection in between and then another novel. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah. So I, I turned in a short story collection uh, 
It's called The Beast You Are. Um, and it features a, an original, hasn't been published anywhere else. It, it features a 30,000 word novella, the title novella. Um, and just because I know <laughs> what mainstream you know, reading audiences want, uh, this novella is a 30,000 word anthropomorphic animal novella that features a giant monster and a cat that's a slasher. And it's also written in free verse. Oh, right. Okay. Nice and easy then. <laughs> I guess that was the most fun I've ever had writing. It wasn't, it wasn't easy. It's not to say it was easy, but it was really fun. <laughs> um, just to allow myself to kind of mess around. Like I, I love Watership Down and, and Animal Farm. So that was, I felt like I was sort of like taking those and trying to combine, you know, some of my favorite emotions that I, you know, I get from those two stories. But uh, it, yeah, it definitely goes off in its own wild direction. Oh, that sounds that sounds excellent! I can't wait for that. Oh, thank you. We talked about your books, Paul. You know the drill. Can you recommend a book from somebody else that my listeners should read and tell us why? Yes. So uh, it's one I just finished reading fairly recently. Maybe this is not a little bit of a cheat, but your readers are going to have to wait for a little bit unless your readers are in uh, Spain or other places. But uh, Mariana Enriquez has a novel that's coming out in English uh, in February. Um, and it's called Our Share of Night. And um, the first thing I would say is, I don't know, like, not that I'm like <laughs> an elderly person, but, uh, but, you know, I feel like you reach a certain age and you kind of like, oh, my list of favorite books is sort of set in stone, right? Your top five. Yeah. Yeah. But so it was so exciting to read Mariana's book and be like, wow, I, this is like one of my favorite books I've ever read. This is definitely like a top five thing. Um that her, her publisher described it like in the promotional letter to me, not that I needed any promotional letter as a, as Roberto Bolaño meets Stephen King. Um, and I think that's fairly accurate. Although I would even say maybe Bolaño meets more like a cosmic horror kind of story. Um, okay. But you know, this spans different decades. It really follows it centers around um, uh, a super rich, like generations, rich family, <clears throat> in Argentina, but there are other people in the world and they're a part of this cult called the order. So I, I won't describe the horror aspect of it too much. Um, and this is Mariana Enriquez who wrote things we lost in the fire. Right? Yes. Yes. Which so I so still haven't read and everyone uh, tells me is superb. Yeah. yeah. So this is her first, I mean, not her first novel, but her first novel that'll be translated into English. Um, but you know, that. it's 700 pages long and when it follows oh, wow. these different characters and it's, you know, bounces around between like the eighties, nineties, sometimes the seventies in Argentina, you know, in the eighties, sort of the backdrop is, uh, I think they call it the dirty war, uh, when Argentina was under like a really fascistic, uh, uh, uh rule and dictatorship and, you know, hundreds of you know, thousands of people are being disappeared politically, et cetera. So all of that is like to say is the background, but it really follows like these different sets of characters at one time. It's a, it's a father with his son and this father is like an important member of this order. I'm doing, I'm butchering like how to describe this book. Cause I don't want to give anything away. Um, so the only thing I would say is so like you get like, you know, a flavor of like what's going on in Argentina, then you're getting all these slices of life. And sometimes you're going through for pages and pages and it's like, wow, this really amazing character study and what's going on with these characters. And then she just hits you with these starbursts of some of the most <laughs> disturbing, frightening pages of, of, of horror fiction that I've read in a long time. So I, I can't say enough about the book and I can't wait for everyone to, uh, to get a chance to read it. 
Well, you sold the shit out of that one to me, Paul. So <laughs> I am all. What's it called again? Give me the title again. Uh, Our share of night. Amazing. I will check that out right now. I'm going to try and find out if um, if Mariana wants to come on the podcast. That sounds phenomenal. My last question. Now, you've yeah. answered this before, and when I asked you this two years ago, you said the film Jaws. Since then, we've had a pandemic, a war, many global crises. So now, Paul, what truly scares you? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I laugh just because it's like, oh, my God, like it just all the horrors of the world. I mean, that, I mean, that's what scares me the most. It's not fun to talk about. So maybe we'll talk about uh, a film that I've seen in recent years was, you know, the one that in the moment scared me the most um, mm-hmm. was, geez, oddly enough, an Argentine <laughs> movie, uh, Atorado or, or Terrified. Right. Um, I've heard about yeah. this and not seen yeah. it. Have you T- seen the tell movie? Me. I, I believe, no, I haven't. I believe it's truly, truly like shit scary yeah it's super scary you know it's you know like if i was just to say hey as a as a pure story i mean there's some holes and flaws but in terms of like just pure unadulterated nightmare fuel it's amazing and there are parts in that movie is like oh man i wish i wrote that um and i don't want to spoil at all Mm -hmm. uh some of those parts um you know it's strange it starts (laughs) you know from the opening from the opening uh frames of the film it just hits you and it's relentless and i i'm part of is i got to see it at a film festival and a giant theater this is obviously pre-pandemic you know and sort of a midnight showing and it was just so loud and so overwhelming and then i had to walk back to my hotel room by myself afterwards and i was so scared that night um and partly because the hotel room i was staying in um had like real beds you know how most hotel beds like are flush against the floor but yeah. man, this stupid place had beds that w- that were pretty high up off the floor. So I had to worry about, you know, the hand grabbing my foot from under the bed. I even got up once that night and I was so disoriented because I wasn't sleeping well and I was terrified. I went out in the hallway to try to find like a um, a water fountain, as we call it in Massachusetts. Or, uh, and I was like convinced that, wait a minute, like the hotel had changed shape. Like I didn't know where I was <laughs> and I had to go back into the room. See, this is one of those moments that I've talked about in your fiction. Yeah, we have to put that hotel room at some point in the story. I will check that film out. I need to check out a lot of horror films on Shudder. I've just not been watching much. I need to watch this, The Sadness that everyone is talking about. Have you heard about this, the, the Taiwanese yeah. zombie movie? It's just vileness upon vileness. And I, I've i got that thing where I, I want to watch it because I'm daring myself. But I don't really <laughs> want to watch it. You know, I don't really want to see that stuff, but I feel I should. Yeah, so. I, no, like that. that's... I had I had the opportunity to see that at the same film festival different year this year, but I was like, nah, I, like the the gore part just because it really gets to me. Like, so I'm probably going to miss that movie. Okay, oh, well, lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> right, Paul, it's been an absolute delight. Uh, honestly, just to reiterate, thank you so much for coming back on. This show really does owe a great deal to you. You've been a great oh. supporter, uh, and I'm happy to return the favor in whatever small way. The Paul Bearers Club will have been out a week. By the time people listen to this, I recommend everyone buy it. Also buy a notepad to try and make sense of its many mysteries. <laughs> and we look forward to the film very, very much. But but Paul Tremblay, thank you for talking scared again. Thank you, Neil. It's my honor to be here, really. Okay, now that any new listeners have gotten through the intro and you've all enjoyed Paul, I can let the mask slip a little. 
I am struggling. This COVID thing is, is pretty rough. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> All I can say is just wow for science and the vaccines. Because if I feel like this for this long after three vaccinations and a winnowing of the disease itself, then holy hell, contracting it in that, that first year must have been awful. Thankfully, I felt okay when I spoke to Paul, because trust me, any kind of depleted mental faculties would have made the Paul Bearers Club almost impossible to read. This book is peak, Paul. He's firing on all cylinders. The prose is intricate and knotty. The narration is slippery. The central premise itself is elusive to the point at which you aren't even sure if A, this is horror, and B, if so, what the horror even is. And I realise all of that sounds like the book is too clever for its own good and that it's not fun, but that's not true. The Paul Bearers Club is great fun. I suspect it's the closest thing we'll ever get to an honest-to-God Tremblay autobiography. And who doesn't want a tour of that life story, however truth-adjacent this version is? And like I and others have mentioned, this is also Paul's brightest book. It's heartwarming in the weirdest way. It's about friendship, however damaging, and it even has jokes. It feels like something wholly new, yet at the same time something intrinsically, essentially, Tremblay. I think you'll like it. It'll frustrate some of you in parts. It'll make you all scratch your head and wonder when horror stopped being about bug-eyed monsters e eating women in nightgowns. But a challenge is never a bad thing. Mark this one down for the horror literate and the genre curious alike. Plus, it's Paul, and he's a boss, and I'm incredibly grateful to him for the help he's given this little show. And whilst I do have enough integrity that I would call this book out if it was rubbish... It's not, and I'm delighted it's not, and I'm able to mark this 100th episode with him and a truly interesting text. It feels a little trite to complain about Covid spoiling the 100th episode celebrations, because, you know, it's hardly the most important thing to have been derailed. But yeah, I'm, I'm a bit gutted. It's not so much that I had big flashing neon plans for this episode, but I did want to mark it properly with an articulate thank you and maybe a competition or an ask me anything or something. I don't know, but I'm struggling to put together this afterward as it is, so we'll just have to delay the razzmatazz until later. Maybe you guys can help out. It's a cheap tactic, this one, <laughs> but I'm going to ask you to spread the word. We've put in hundreds of hours together, guys. You, me, and the guests. Tell the world about it. Write me a review if you can, retweet this episode and tag me on whatever social media you like. Let's make this week a big talking scared loving. Mostly because I'm too shattered and nasally congested to do it alone. Oh, and of course, if you are so inclined, you can sign up for Patreon. The link is in the show notes or just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod for lots of bonus content. There'll even be an extra half hour from Paul going up this week. What I really want to know is what you've loved. Every week I offer a reason for you to get in touch, and this week it's a sincere, earnest request to hear what you've enjoyed about this journey we've taken together. Any favourite guests? Any books that you found through the show and especially loved? Any moments that stand out? I know that the episode with Cassandra Kaur, where they talk about essentially the meaning of life, still resonates for me. What about you guys? Let me know. It would mean the world to hear from you. You can get in touch as ever 
on social media at TalkScaredPod, that's Twitter and Instagram, or email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. And two more things before we wrap up this episode. First of all, I'm back next week with the first episode of the next 100. That's with Nat Cassidy talking all about his menopause horror novel, Mary, An Awakening of Terror. It's a really special episode, a conversation I enjoyed very, very much. Don't miss that. Second, and you knew this was coming, (laughs) here's an over-the-top thank you. Seriously, friends, thank you all from the bottom of my pitch-black heart. I could not have envisioned how much of a difference Talking Scare would make to my life. It's given me purpose, a creative outlet, an amazing community, and some wonderful friends. And that's all thanks to every one of you who has downloaded an episode. Over 60,000 in total. Everyone who's tweeted, shared, liked, and supported. The Horrorverse is fertile ground and full of the best people. We've been through a pandemic together, a new land war in Europe, an insurrection, and whatever the fuck you call what is happening in UK politics. It's been a blast, and I fully intend to do this for the foreseeable future, which I hope you're happy to hear. I should also say a huge thanks to my wife, Georgia, who is supportive without compare. Despite having no tolerance for horror, she listens to me talk at length about each book I read and every interview I do. She's a blessing, and she'll probably hear this in about eight months. Oh, and of course I haven't forgotten. Thanks to Ted, who makes me smile every day. Right, that's the Oscar speech over. That's that. I'm I'm off to breathe in some menthol. Um, Speak next week, and until then, be kind to your friends, turn your amp up to 11, and never let the truth get in the way of a great story. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.